Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Understanding how to support refugees takes time, thoughtfulness and experience. My social impact pioneer today has these in bucketfuls. Meet Dale Busher. Dale has been working to help refugees and displaced people since 1988. Dale has worked with Vietnamese boat people in the Philippines and later with Haitian refugees interned in Guantanamo Bay. He has worked with displaced Kurds in northern Iraq, with Bosnian refugees in Croatia and with Kosovars in Albania and Kosovo. He's had extended field postings in Pakistan and Afghanistan and the list just goes on. Dale's pragmatic experience has seen him advising the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. He has written a field handbook entitled Operational Protection in Camps and Settlements, and he is currently the Vice President of Programmes for the Women's Refugee Commission. Phew, that is some list of experience, Dale. I am delighted to welcome you today. Thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Katie. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Ah, I'm so, so glad. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And I wanted to start it with the fact that, I mean, you've been working to help support displaced people since the late 80s, not meaning to age anybody, but, you know, you've really seen that the world and, and some pretty difficult situations in that time. I was wondering what brought you to the point where you have devoted your career and your life to this, this tough work? And what have you seen change in the time since then? Yeah, thanks for that question, Katie. I mean, I've always been inspired by people who do something, dedicate their lives to making the world a little bit better place. And I thought I had a responsibility to do that as well. I think we all have a responsibility to do that. And when I thought about that, you know, part of my growing up, I thought maybe I'll be a missionary. And it's like, well, I'm really not religious, or maybe I'll be a doctor who can work overseas. And I'm like, I'm really not that smart. But doing humanitarian work really resonated with me, and I, I found a path in to do this work. And in doing this work, I found, you know, if we really think about those who are most marginalized, most left behind, living in the most desperate, precarious situations, I just really landed on refugees. And it's like, these are the people I want to work with. There are so few individuals who have lost so much and who have to restart their lives completely over with little or nothing, you know, to lose home, community, country, sometimes family, and somehow push on. Like, that's that's what I want to engage with. And I have seen lots of changes over the years, some of them very dramatic and some at the same time, too little and too slow. You know, we've moved from treating refugees as simply desperate people with this myriad of needs to really starting to recognize their skills, their capacities, their abilities to contribute. We consult with them more on their priorities, 
and allow them to play a more active role in the response. We haven't gone nearly far enough and we haven't gone nearly fast enough. I mean, I really believe those of us who work for international NGOs need to get in the back seat and let refugees sit in the front seat and do the driving and that we just support through financial resources and technical assistance. But we're not there yet. I think we're on that path, but we still have a long way to go. As you say, like a long way to go. And I was wondering whether we could talk about that, that the scale of that challenge, which is, I, I read recently in a global displacement forecast report that the total number of people displaced will increase by 1.9 million in 2023 and an additional 3.5 million in 2024, which obviously is projecting. But at the same time, like why, what is driving this huge increase in displaced people? Why, why is the number nearly doubled since 2015 alone? And what can we really do about these statistics in terms of you know, just helping people. But also, is it about sort of stopping that flow of migration? It's a tough question, Katie. I mean, there are so many overlapping reasons for these ever increasing numbers of displaced. I mean, think about the conflict in Syria, the current unrest in Sudan, the war in the Ukraine, the military junta in Myanmar, the gang and drug violence in the Northern Triangle of Central America. We have so many countries experiencing upheaval and conflict. And of course, people are trying to seek safety from those situations, right? And these situations, as we've seen in Syria, as we've seen in Somalia, as we've seen in Venezuela, they go on and on and on. So we're increasingly seeing the ever increasing protracted nature of these displacement situations. People aren't going home after six months, after 12 months, after two years. We have people living on the Thai-Burma border who have been there for over 30 years. Likewise, in the Dadaab camp in Kenya, we have Somalis who have been there for over 30 years. So that's part of the reason, right? But people aren't just fleeing conflict. And I think that's also why we're seeing these increasing numbers. They're they're fleeing this, the interlinked crises that are out there, climate change, violence, you know, human rights abuses, the loss of livelihoods, the lack of economic opportunities, and all of these things come together. And at some point, people, those families, those individuals go, I can't do this anymore. This does not work for me. A combination of those factors are really driving people to find not only safety, but also obviously better lives, economic opportunities, you know, a a life for their children, which is, of course, something we all want, right? You know, climate change alone is expected to displace an additional 150 million people by 2050. We're not ready for that. You know, these numbers are going to just continue to go up and up. But when we're talking about these numbers, we can't lose sight of the fact that these are individuals, these are families, these are communities that are being impacted, real people with real stories, facing insurmountable upheaval and tragedy. And they're just trying to find safety. They're trying to survive. It's parents who want to feed their children, parents who want to protect their children, parents who want their children to have access to education. Yes, it's really the basics there. And and it it makes me really think that once upon a time, I was an evolutionary biology student. And I always remember being taught how the reason why humans are so successful is because we do migrate. We can live in any climate, we can adapt, we can kind of get on with the world. 
That's why you find us absolutely everywhere. So I was kind of curious as to why is migration, why are people moving such a problem? Why can we not seem to find a way to accept migration as just something that happens? I was wondering what your thoughts are to that. Yeah, that's a good question, Katie. I mean, if you do look at human history, people have always migrated, right? And what started to change, if you think about history, is in the mid-1600s, when Europe started creating nation states, right? And for the first time, we started seeing national boundaries. And then, of course, that eventually, especially post-World War II, played played out across Africa, played out across the Middle East. And once you had nation states, suddenly borders, identity, who is us, who is not us, those conversations, those things started to happen. And hence, there started to be, if you will, almost invisible fences put around countries, right? Who are we going to let in? Who are we not going to let in and why? So I think that's some of of what got us to where we are today. It is about identity. It is about definition and sort of that fear of the other. And in terms of moving forward, I think that's the first thing we have to address is really that fear of the other. How do we start appreciating and recognizing the contributions that migrants and refugees bring to our countries, the different ideas, the different perspectives, the different skill sets, you know, really celebrate that diversity. And I feel like that's something as a global community we really struggle with. There's that fear of people who are different from us, right? Instead of that appreciation for what those differences, how those differences really enrich our own societies. And if we're going to figure this out, all of us, the US, the UK, governments around Europe, the Asia Pacific, we need to really think about what is a humane, fair, and equitable way for people to access asylum in our countries and or employment in our countries for those who are migrating for economic opportunities. Instead of these reactive ad hoc approaches we have in place around the world now, which tend to be punitive, which tend not to protect those who most need protection, and that don't tend to even work for the countries who are trying to protect their borders, right? How do we rethink a system that works better for all of us? And I want to stick with your experience next, because as you started talking there, you really just showed how much you have been working on the front line of this, but in a kind of holistic way. For those who are potentially listening to this, what would be your practical advice, the action that you might suggest people who are who are listening to this should take, whether they're from companies or NGOs, policymakers, even academia? Yes, there's so many ways now. I mean, what, what has been one of the, the changes we've seen in the world is there are so many ways for people to engage. The private sector is engaging in different ways. Here in the U.S., for example, we have Welcome U.S., which is mobilizing communities, mobilizing the private sector to support alternative pathways for people in need of protection to come to the U.S. These are models that are also being applied in other countries. So there's ways to get involved to support the resettlement of refugees and asylum seekers. There's ways to donate to the organizations, of course, who are supporting those populations. And most importantly, I would say for all of us in our communities, it's get to know these individuals. They will enrich your lives. We can employ them. We can mentor them. We can buy from the companies, the the services they set up. 
And so it's it's a matter for us to really find ways of engaging. And I think increasingly there are so many more ways for all of us to engage. So if anybody's listening who happens to be displaced or knows others who are displaced or, or working or, you know, on that journey, what might your advice be from the experience that you've had, Dale? I would say for those displaced, speak up, demand a seat at the table, let the aid workers know what you need and how you can contribute, you know, participate, link up with your host community members, build those social networks with the communities that you're displaced within. Be seen, be visible, participate, because the stronger those bonds are between hosting communities and displaced communities, the more empathy, the more engagement, the more support those populations are going to receive. There you go, everybody. Some wise advice from somebody with tons of experience there. So thank you for sharing that. I was also curious, as you were talking there, about the position that you hold and and what you can see from, from where you're sitting. What are you seeing in terms of trends or in terms of of things that are perhaps surprisingly positive that have taken place in your work that that just kind of keep you going? I do see, Katie, more and more organizations, our own, the Women's Refugee Commission included, who are really channeling resources to refugee-led organizations, right? Letting refugees set the agenda, letting refugees decide those priorities. And funding them to actually implement those priorities. So they're deciding what those are, how to respond, and engaging their own community members in that response. And I think that's a hugely positive trend that we have to go much, much further with. Another trend that I'm very excited about, something that we have also been working on for years, is really pushing the humanitarian community to move beyond, you know, this supply-driven approach and really start with what, what's the demands from the community? And what we know, having traveled all over the world and listened to refugees in camps and urban areas and other displaced populations, what I've heard over and over again is we just want jobs. We want to work. We want to make choices for ourselves. We can take care of the rest. If you help us earn money, help us find employment, we'll take care of all those other things that currently the the humanitarian sector is doing, giving food, giving cash assistance, et cetera. And I do see there has been a real movement within the humanitarian community to say, yes, we need to focus much more on refugee self-reliance. And this goes back a little bit to one of your previous questions. If we help people better where they are, some people are going to be more likely to stay where they are. It's that lack of opportunity where they have been displaced that keeps them continuing to move on. But if we support refugees to rebuild their lives, give them back their dignity, give them back their choice, give them back their agency, and do it from the beginning of the response, not waiting two years, five years, 10 years in, then it's too late. We've already lost them, right? So how do we actually create economic opportunities for refugees? early on, get them back on their own two feet and their families, you know, on the road to self-reliance so that we rechannel those limited resources to those most in need and most marginalized, right? There's a limited budget. There's a limited response. We just have to change how we work. And what happens where refugees are going into places without, where there's a sort of limited economic capability or capacity anyway? Is there something more that we can do just to kind of 
I don't know, make it easier for everybody. Yes. I mean, what we're trying to do through, you know, we're we're promoting this refugee self-reliance initiative and through that, by capturing the impact of economic programs targeting refugees, are they really leading to those households becoming self-reliant? We w- we're trying to generate the evidence for those hosting countries to say, look, this can be a win-win. If you allow refugees to work, they can contribute to your own economy. And what we have seen, you know, over the years is eventually when you allow refugee businesses to grow, they start employing locals. So you're expanding the economic opportunities even for the host community. We do know that in many, so it's a it's about expanding those refugee rights, the right to work where they are from the beginning of displacement, but it's also about looking at the unique and different skill sets that some of these refugee populations bring into a new country that haven't been there before or were there in a different way. So they're adding to the market. For example, in Kampala, you have a lot of Congolese refugees and the Congolese women are experts on the hair braiding. They've taken over the industry. I mean, it's huge. And all of the Ugandan women want to go to these Congolese hairdressers because they know how to do that hair braiding. So it's like looking at how we tap some of those capacities, some of that expertise, some of those skill sets that perhaps were somehow lacking or absent in that host environment. And if and when that data is ready, um, I would love to share it. So for anybody listening, if, if I can get hold of the, the business case um, or that, that win-win data, at the Dale referred to, I'll put it in the link that sits alongside uh, the podcast. So Dale, listening to you talking about that and and the the example that you gave around Congolese women and sitting in Uganda and hair braiding and, and taking that industry, what therefore does success look like? What does success look like for the work that you're doing, but also for both the refugee communities themselves, but also the host communities? Yes, Katie, thank you. You know, historically, Katie, with livelihood programs targeting refugee populations, we've measured outputs and outcomes. How many people have gone through a training program? How many people have received a microfinance loan? Those kinds of things, but we haven't measured the impact. And so a few years ago, colleagues and I developed a short index to really get at how do we measure the impact of these programs? Are they really achieving what we hope they're achieving? which is to put refugees on a path to self-reliance, right? Can we get them back on their own two feet and actually responsibly disengage that humanitarian assistance and rechannel that to others in need of that assistance? So to me, success looks like, you know, really getting refugee households back on their own two feet, restoring that dignity, giving them that choice. And with this project, which we've just slowly been rolling out, we now have 41 partners using this index to measure their programs in 27 different countries. And we've reached about 2 million refugees. And to me, this is part of what success looks like. Part of success is giving refugees back their lives. And this is what they're asking for. As I mentioned earlier, they want to work. They want to make choices about where and how they spend their money, how they support their families instead of us doing that for them. And to me, Success means we really sort of flip the humanitarian system on its head and say, we're not going to do the Band-Aids anymore. We're not going to just give, there's a place and a time for that, the food assistance, the emergency health care, those things. But we need to flip it on its head and say, immediately from day one in emergency, 
let's really start focusing on how we make these populations self-reliant, give them back again, restore their dignity, give them back opportunity, give them back their lives. Um, so, Dale, I want to sort of draw this conversation to close because I feel like we could talk forever on this. And I feel like I'm just scratching at the surface of your insights. But to give everybody a kind of good teaser into, into the work that you do, what's next for you? What's next for, for the work that you're up to? Well, Katie, I should be retiring, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. I think, you know, the organization I work for, the Women's Refugee Commission, I think we have a role to play in climate change particularly around how to use cash to support women to adapt, mitigate, modify, change their livelihoods. So again, we're helping people to stay where they are if they want to stay. But we know, especially women entrepreneurs have so few resources that when climate change causes them to lose their livelihoods, their crops don't grow, their animals, whatever that is, how can we use an influx of cash to actually help them change that, adapt, mitigate those changes. So I think there's a there's a role there. Another area we're focused on is the protection of LGBTQ refugees, you know, a, a population that's often overlooked, that faces huge protection challenges, and that many governments not only don't want to recognize, but actually actively persecute, right? And so how do we think about expanding the protection environment with those populations and what does that look like so we're we're trying out a couple of models there and lastly i would say one of the one of my personal goals is again how do we move the humanitarian system from being needs based to strengths based so how do instead of we go you know going into a near, a new emergency and trying to identify all of the needs these populations have that we go in and say, let's look at all of the skills, all of the capacities, the knowledge, and the expertise these populations have, and let's tap that, let's engage that as part of the response. Oh, sounds, well, a epic, massive, massive ask there, <laughs> but um, equally uh, really important pieces. And again, for anybody listening, I will try my hardest to get hold of some of that work that um, Dale referred to. So whether it's uh, women and adaptation to climate change and, and supporting that through cash injections, whether it's protecting LGBTQ refugees or indeed needs to uh, strengths-based work. But Dale, in the meantime, I wanted to say a massive thank you for giving up your time to uh, share that insight with us today. Dale, thank you. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.